Hold it open so I can see it. Hold it up. Is that funny or what? I wonder, I wonder if that scene played out in any of the homes in our community over Christmas. I don't know. <laughs> I have to give uh, props to Mark Hale, our worship leader, not only for the great worship that he and Sarah just led us in, but because um, of Mark, indirectly, I would have been talking about garlic this morning. Seriously, when I vacationed uh, in Florida over Thanksgiving, I was working towards teaching today about a tablespoon of minced garlic. I'm serious. But when I came back from vacation and I saw the planning document for this morning and I saw for the first time the worship set that Mark had prayerfully picked for this service, in the moment that I saw the title of the last song before the message, It Is Well With My Soul, I sensed immediately that God desired that I might leverage that song this morning in my words to you. So the minced garlic message is on hold, but who knows, maybe someday. And and, and I began to pray and ask God, where am I supposed to go with this song this morning? And God called my attention to the last couple of months and the staggering run of difficult circumstances that have beset our staff and our community and our church family. I've been on staff here now for three and a half years And I personally, I can't remember a period of time where collectively we have experienced the quantity and the intensity of of difficult life circumstances like we have in the last several months. Sudden and unexplained illnesses and surgeries and auto accidents and bouts with depression and broken marriages and and a number of very tragic and untimely deaths. There has been so much pain And so much loss these last few months. And and I know that intuitively there is many more. There's much more in terms of pain and loss in our church that I'm not even aware of. And I have been stunned by the magnitude of that loss and pain. And then, of course, on top of the very close to home and personal loss and pain that our community has experienced, our country, our world has been deeply hurt and damaged by terrible circumstances over the last couple of months. Terror attacks in California and in Paris and so much more. And those thoughts were flooding my mind as I considered that song title, It Is Well With My Soul, and I immediately thought, or is it? Or is it? Hence the title for today's message that you see printed on the front cover of the program. And I had this thought that probably thousands of churches, if not tens of thousands of churches in every language across the globe every Sunday sing this song, proclaiming, it it is well with my soul. And I had to think, or is it? 
And it was the reality that this room would likely be full of audible voices, which it was, and many inner voices, because you don't want to punish the person that's sitting next to you or in front of you, which I can relate because I have stood next to Steve Shelby during worship. You laugh. You don't know if I'm talking about his voice or my voice. But we sing, it is well. And and in, in that, in knowing that we would be doing that this morning, I sensed this tension that was supposed to drive the message today. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but for me now, after 17 years of following Jesus, if you ask me the question, is it well with your soul? So often my contemplation of the answer would immediately go to my current life circumstances. You know, I'd kind of cycle through the things that seem to be most important to me in my life, like my relationships, like my health physically and emotionally, or maybe the health of those closest to me. And I would think about my, maybe my current financial world, my job. And so often it's that evaluation that would drive my response. And maybe some of you can relate to that. And if you, if you walked up to me and you said, hey, is it well with your soul? I probably wouldn't pause and scratch my chin and cycle through those life circumstances. I mean, I live in my life circumstances. You live in your life circumstances. They're on us. They're in us. They're around us. And so often our response to that question, is it well with you? It's this reflex response. It happens in way less time than I just took to explain that to you. And honestly, when that song started, if not for me having been preparing this message, I would likely, I would have just started singing. Maybe like you did with no real thought that there was even a question that needed to be asked. We didn't ask you, is it well with your soul? And then invite you to sing, did we? We didn't, we didn't do that. No, we put the words on the screen. They're familiar words to many of you. And so your mouth started moving and you sang the words out loud or maybe you sang them to yourself, but you sang. And I wonder if we asked the question first and we gave you a chance to consider your answer as reflexive as it might have been and then invited only those to sing where the words of that song are true for them and where nobody was worried about anybody looking at them and and worried if they saw them not singing, they would rather just sing because they want to put up this facade, which we tend to do, would you have sung? Seriously, if you considered the question, is it well with my soul, and you would only sing the lyrics if it were true for you, would you have sung the song? How many voices may have been absent in this room And I dare say probably it would be a whole lot of voices that would be absent. Would you buy that? Would you buy that maybe? And if we ask the question, what would the barometer be? What would the measuring stick be that you would use to do that evaluation in your mind? Would it be so often as I tend to do to cycle through the life circumstances that are going on around you that are important to you, like relationships with people and health, maybe yours or someone you care for, or your financial world, or your work world. And I really think that's what most of us do reflexively, is that we think about earthly things. Would you buy that? Might that be your reflex? And so now I want to refer you back to that video clip that we all laughed at. It wasn't something funny that I just randomly thought that you would enjoy post-Christmas. To me, it contains the essence of what I want to talk to you about today, 
as I believe that it unintentionally poses this profound question of faith. Is it well with your soul? There's this picture. I want to show you this picture of the boys right at the beginning of the clip. Can you imagine the hope, even the excitement for both of those boys as that unopened gift was sitting before them in their lap? And if you ask them in the moment, is it well? I suspect that there would be a reflexive response from both of them that says, it is well. Or is it? Right? Run the clip. Or is it? You can board this duck, and you guys are studying the worst. <laughs> I hate Jack likes his present. He got the best. And I got the worst. It's not fair. You like it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I would argue, I would argue that what we choose to be the barometer or the measuring stick of whether it is well can affect us to the very core level of our soul. And the first boy, he clearly chose his current life circumstances to have priority in answering that question. If you asked him now, is it well? Well, you saw the response. And he's not just sad. He is bitter. He is angry. He may be even is hateful because his life wasn't going his way. While somehow the boy with the potato, he just seemed like he was okay, didn't he? In fact, maybe even more than okay. And I know he didn't have a potato on his Christmas list. I know that. And yet there seems to be this inner peace for him that clearly his brother wasn't experiencing. It seemed like it was well with his soul, didn't it? He certainly could have been lying, putting up a facade. I mean, we all do that. But what if it were true? What if it was really true that to the very core of his being and soul that he had this piece about him? Wouldn't we all want that for ourselves? Now, I know this isn't a perfect analogy. I know a lousy Christmas present doesn't compare to the reality of all of the difficult circumstances that I referred to that have been going on in our lives that many of you have experienced, and I don't mean for a second to minimize the reality of the depth of anyone's individual loss or pain, especially those that are right in the throes of that, but I believe the video illustrates the heartbeat behind this timeless hymn that we sang this morning, that it could be well with our souls even in the midst of such pain and loss. And I believe that that can make a difference for every single one of us today if we would get that to the core. And then prayerfully, it would make a difference tomorrow and the next day and into this new year that would launch. Do you know the context under which that hymn was written? I know some of you do, but I know many of you don't. And you need to know. You need to know the background behind that song because like countless churches across the globe, we're going to sing that song again someday. And you need to sing it based upon the embedded truth that is in it. Not because you know the words or that you like the melody or that you're afraid of what others will think if you're not singing, but rather because it can ignite a peace and a hope in you that I know that we all want, that we all want. So here's the backstory to the song. 
It was written by a man named Horatio Spafford in 1873. This guy was a well-known and well-to-do lawyer and businessman and real estate tycoon in Chicago. And you might think for a well-known and well-to-do person, it might be kind of easy to write a song that's titled, It Is Well With My Soul. But the truth is, not long before he wrote the song, there was this great fire in Chicago that destroyed a very large part of the city and virtually all of his real estate holdings. And this on the heels of the death of his four-year-old son to illness. And the combined impact of that on his life and his family's life was devastating. As you can imagine, it was devastating. And so Spafford decides that a change of scenery would be good for his family to move beyond, or at least begin to move beyond the tremendous loss. And so a family vacation is planned to England and to Europe. And when it's time to travel, some business comes up for Spafford, and he has to stay in Chicago. But he persuades his wife and the four daughters to go on before him. And it's some time later when he, his wife arrives in England and sends him a telegram that includes these words, saved alone. Saved alone. The ship that she and the four daughters were traveling on, it collided with another vessel in the middle of the Atlantic, and it sunk. And the telegram said, all the children are lost. All the children are lost. He leaves immediately and begins his travel to go meet up with his grief-stricken wife. And while now himself sailing across the Atlantic Ocean, the captain of the ship who heard of the loss that he endured, calls him up to the bridge to tell him that they were now traveling over the approximate spot where his four daughters had perished. And it was then that he left the bridge, he immediately returned to his cabin, and he began to write the words that became this hymn. And you need to know this about Horatio Spafford. He was not just a lawyer and a businessman. He was deeply devoted to following Jesus. And this hymn, it is steeped with God's word. In fact, the essence of the song was inspired by a story in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 36. Maybe you'll read that later, the whole story. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 36. It's a story about a woman who's deeply devoted to God, And she becomes this generous supporter of the prophet Elisha, of the prophet Elisha. And after a time, Elisha has received so much support from this woman that Elisha wishes to respond back in favor for her to do something for her. And so he asks her, what can I do for you? Can I put in a good word for you with the king? Can I put in a good word for you with the commander of the army? And she says, no, no, no. I have a family. My family's taking care of me. Everything is fine. But he feels just so compelled to do something for her. He asks his aide, Gehazi, he says, what can we do for her? What can we do for her? And Gehazi replies back. He says, she doesn't have a son, and her husband is an old man. And so Elisha calls her back into the room, and he says to her, next year at this time, you will have a son. And I love it. At the end of verse 16, she says something to the effect of, 
don't mess with me, Elijah. I mean, I know I'm an old woman. He's an old man. That horse has left the barn. Don't tease an old lady. That is the essence of her response. But verse 17 says she becomes pregnant. She becomes pregnant. And guess what? They didn't have ultrasound back then. So she didn't know what the sex of the baby would be. But can you imagine the hope and the excitement that is welling up inside of her as she's going through her pregnancy? Could this be my son? Could it really be a son? Is this the gift that I have been longing for? The present is literally gift-wrapped in her abdomen. And when it comes time to take the wrapping off, so to speak... She gives birth to a boy. Can you imagine the excitement that she must have felt in that? And then the story goes on and it says the boy grows old enough to where he can begin to help his old father out in the farm, in the fields. And while doing so one day, the boy gets a headache and he becomes suddenly sick. And the worst possible thing that can happen to a woman, to this woman, to any woman, it happens the boy dies. And not just that, the boy dies in her lap. Oh, the devastation that she must have felt, the sickening loss that she must have felt, the emptiness. It must have been incomprehensible. And the passage says, I have to tell Elisha. And so she immediately leaves where she is to go find him. And she travels a long way on a donkey to find Elisha. And in verse 26 which I'm going to read to you in the King James Version, because that's what would have been Spafford's Bible in 1873. We see what inspired Spafford to write the hymn. So Elijah sees her coming, and he tells Gehazi, his aide, Run now, I pray thee, to meet her, and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answers, It is well. It is well is her reflex response to the question. Now, I guess she could have been lying or putting up a facade. Don't we do that so often? But she traveled too far to find Elisha just to lie about her well-being. In fact, in the following verses, she lays out the agony of her circumstances. So she's holding no secrets. Could her it is well be real? And if so, how? And and I take it that we are to take her it is well as being very real and very authentic. And I think the how is found in the word priority. I think the how is found in the word priority. There was a priority in her response when she said it is well. The Hebrew word for well that she used is the word shalom. It's the word shalom, and it means to have completeness, soundness, and peace to the very core of your being with emphasis on your relationship with God. So her reflex response, it wasn't driven by her earthly life circumstances, but rather by her eternal life circumstances with God. Her response, it had an an eternal priority, not an earthly priority. That was the barometer that the woman of 2 Kings chapter 4 chose to answer the question with. That's what she chose. And I thought, man, can that be real for us? I mean, can that be real for us? And in the midst of preparing this message, 
I met with a woman who was struggling with a personal circumstance that was very painful. And after our meeting, she was leaving, and I just randomly asked her, I said, is it well with your soul? And with the not-yet-dried tears on her cheek, her reflexive answer was yes. And I believed her. And it would have been so natural for her to say no. I mean, I already knew she was hurting. There was no need to lie about it. And most, in her situation, they would have worn bitterness and anger, maybe even hate on their sleeves, but there was none of that in the hurt that I saw. Yes, her it is well was real because I know she has this eternal priority in her life. It was well with her soul eternally, and God had given me this walking reflection of what this morning could be for all of us. And, and as she said yes, I felt this flush on the inside, and I just wanted to give her this gigantic hug, which would have been inappropriate in the moment. And so I just gave her a little high five. And as she left, my heart swelled with encouragement for my own life and in the potential of what today's message could be for you. And I think the reason this hymn is so popular is that it affirms something that we want to believe, that all of us want to experience in our lives to the very core of who we are. And that is no matter what the circumstances are that we encounter, that somehow we could have this underlying legitimate sense of hope and peace to our very core, that where we could say, it is well with my soul, even in the midst of pain and loss, and for it to be true. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. And this passage, it doesn't imply that God expects that we would therefore approach our trials and our tragedies with glibness and happiness. Of, of course not. But rather that we would still see in every circumstance in life, ranging from the best of the best to the worst of the worst, a hope that could provide this inner peace that the woman of 2 Kings chapter 4 would choose, that the woman that I met with would choose because everything that happens in our lives, everything is intended to point us to the eternity that God promises us. The greatest things that we experience in our life, they pale in comparison to what we're going to experience when we are in heaven with Jesus. They pale in comparison. And the tragedies, even the most dire circumstances that we experience in this life, Scripture says that when we get to heaven and when we're with Jesus, never again will any of them in any measure ever exist. None of it. Friends, that is good news. That is the good news of Jesus that offers us this perspective of an eternal priority that can govern our well-being even while we're still here. And even as Spafford finds himself in this tension between deep, deep sorrow and anguish, as the bodies of his four daughters are in this ocean below him, pressing up against his faith in his good God, not only does he claim that truth for himself, but he memorializes it for every person that would ever see this song, hear this song, sing this song. And my heart's desire for you, God's heart's desire for you is that you would move closer to a place where you can live out of that reality, where you can live in the hope and the peace of an eternal 
priority and not in earthly priority. It's what Spafford chose to do. This hymn, this hymn, it has a total of six verses. We sang the first three. We, I'm sorry, we sang three today. The first, the third, and the sixth. And I just want to look briefly at some of the song lyrics with you so that you may consider whether you would want this to be true for you, even through the tears of sorrow, if necessary. That the next time you sing that, you will sing those words with truth and integrity to the very core of who you are, that it would be what you want. Verse 1, it says, When peace like a river attendeth my way. He's saying when life is really good, when it's clicking on all eight cylinders, when sorrows like sea billows roll, when I am broken to the core, even as I sail over the rolling seas where my four daughters perished, doesn't that now give new meaning to that lyric? Where sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, no matter what my earthly circumstances are, thou hast taught me to say, God himself has instructed us as to what our response could be and should be. It is well, it is well with my soul. It is shalom. Do you see Spafford claim the woman's response in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 26? It is well. And then verse 2, which we didn't sing, but there is, it is so profound. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, Spafford is acknowledging that there is a real spiritual enemy out there named Satan who will buffet us, which means that he will strike us with telling force through the trials in our lives. Spafford is firmly in the midst of that. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. So he's about to remind himself of this stunning reality of what the priority should be above all things for his well-being. That Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Spafford is remembering that we are powerless against the attacks of this spiritual superpower named Satan. And as we face the prospects of just bleeding out from the blows that he delivers, have you ever felt like life was just bleeding you out? That Jesus understands our helplessness? And not only that he has understood it or regarded it, but that he has stepped into our place such that it would be his blood that would be poured out in place of ours. It would be his blood that would be shed in order that he would protect us and save us to the very core of our soul. Verse 3, which we sang, it says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. He begins this thought about the state of his sin. He can't even finish it because he's overwhelmed with this joyful thought about the truth that he's about to write. So he continues on. He finishes his thought. He says, my sin, not in part, but the whole. He reminds himself, Scripture says that every sin that has or would ever separate him or ever separate us from the goodness of God has been dealt with through the blood that Jesus shed. Not just a small sin, but the most horrific sin that we could ever imagine that we would commit or maybe have committed. Not just the past sin, but the future sin. Scripture says all of it has been dealt with. 
It says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Do you hear the words of the song? My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Spafford is remembering he is released You and I are released fully from the burdens that our sin would create on us. They're nailed to the cross with Jesus. And in that thought, he finishes verse 3. He says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Now, he certainly isn't running around his room woo-hooing. He's certainly not happy and glib about the circumstances, but even yet, He quotes Psalm 146, verse 1. He says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Friend, he finds hope, even joy, not in his earthly circumstances, but in the wonderful good news about what Christ has done for him on the cross. It is an eternal priority to his well-being that reaches to the very soul, that drives him to his very soul. And then the last verse we sang. And Lord, haste the day. Meaning, God, would you just run through the calendar? Would you just hurry up? When faith, when our faith shall be sight. Another scripture passage Spafford refers to. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, which says that today we walk by faith, not sight. In other words, today we have to have faith in God's goodness. We have to believe in something that we don't see. But Scripture says there will be a day which Spafford is longing for and which Christ follows long for where we will need faith no longer because we will have all of God and all of his promises in plain sight before us. We will tangibly know it's true. Is that a crazy thought? One day you will no longer have the need for faith because we will see God and his goodness with our very eyes. I don't need to have faith that this teaching stand is here because I see it. I can touch it. With my very eyes, I know it's true. And there will be a day someday where we will no longer have to have faith to believe in something that we haven't seen as true. We will see it with our eyes to be true. How wonderful that is. He writes, the clouds be rolled back like a scroll. It's like the curtain of of earthly life circumstances that veils our ability to see into heaven and our eternity. They'll be rolled back, giving us clear view to what is true. And then he says, and the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Another reference to scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 18 uses these words to describe the hope for all of us that believe in Jesus, that there will be a a resurrection, that we will be raised up, where there may be reunion with our loved ones, where, where scripture says there will be no more sorrow and no more pain, none of that, and we will see the Lord face to face with our eyes. Spafford says, Lord, would you hurry that day up? But even so, even as I wait, it is well with my soul. I don't know about you, but I want to live out of this reality of the words of this hymn deeply. I want to live this today 
And I would love to live this tomorrow because who knows what tomorrow brings for me and even to the days of the new year and beyond. And, and I hope you do too. And so I want to close with four quick things to maybe help each of us to get there, to move a little bit closer to this reality. The first is that we have to have an eternal perspective. We have to believe there is more to this life than just this physical one. Now, many of you in the room, you know that, and you believe that to your core. There is an eternity. There is an eternity. But sometimes we just forget that as we get caught up in the morass of our life circumstances. And you need to be reminded of that. And some of you in the room, you're not sure about that yet. But as we go through this life and we experience what we experience we want, to, we want to know, we want to believe there's something more. And in fact, God has written in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says, God has placed eternity into the human heart. We want to believe that there is something more. And there is. And, and what there is, is there's two things about eternity we have to know. We can either spend it with God or not with God. And so my encouragement is don't stay stuck in the eternal life apart from God. If you have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, you are still heading for and stuck in the eternal life that will be apart from God. Scripture calls that place hell. And as you bleed out now, that eternity separated for God, you will be bleeding out for all of your eternity if you haven't accepted this amazing gift of grace through Jesus. So the second thing is simply, if you haven't done this yet, consider accepting this amazing gift of eternal life in heaven with Jesus. You can do that even now or in a moment as I pray, simply and genuinely by just asking Jesus to forgive your sins and lead your life. It's as simple yet as profound as that. And then the third encouragement for you is stay reminded of this hymn. Man, there is such power in this hymn. My encouragement is to find something tangible that would keep you reminded of it. Maybe write, it is well, on a sticky and stick it somewhere. On a mirror, on a dashboard, I don't know, but stick it somewhere where you'll see it regularly. Or download a ringtone for it is well with my soul. They really have those. Download one of those or get a potato. I, I don't know. I don't know what it might be for you, but do something where the truth of this hymn could be before you. That even in the greatest things of life, you will remember that even these things that feel so great right now will pale in comparison to what you're going to experience in heaven with God. Man, that can make your day rock. And then even in the midst of the hard things, keep this, this hymn before you and remember that there is a priority to the well-being of our soul and it is an eternal priority. And that even in the midst of pain, you may find some inner peace and hope in that. And then finally, the last thing, if you're struggling with, with, with consuming that to the core because you have some, some pain and loss in your life that is so fresh, cut yourself some slack on that. I feel confident Spafford went through a process. We know he had to travel all the way from Chicago, all the way to likely New York to catch the boat. So he had a lot of time to process. And my encouragement to you would be to allow yourself to go through the process, but to want this deeply in your soul to be true for you. And to just process with God through his word. That passage, that song is steeped in God's word. Surround yourself with God's people. 
And let that truth just pervade over you as you go through that trial. Friends, in the days, even in the new year ahead, may it be increasingly true for you that it is well with your soul.